0: I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Folks, the Oscar race is heating up. <laughs> um, actually, I'd like to talk about something that's not the Oscar race. <laughs> something that's even more important, which is the Razzie race. Folks, the Razzie race is heating up. Who's gonna win? Who's gonna lose? Um, I, I think I'd gone a long time on this podcast without ever bringing up the Razzies. But uh, they have been in the news a bit lately. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, Luke. The, the Oscars, they give awards to good movies. <laughs> but what if you had an award show that gave awards to bad movies, right? You're telling me such a thing exists? It's the annual Golden Raspberry Awards. It was founded in 1981 by one John J.B. Wilson, who is who a publicist. He was a publicist at one of the studios. And um, all that you need to know about the Razzies is that in the first year, they nominated Stanley Kubrick for Worst Director for The Shining. So they're not always uh, not always quite on the mark.
1: <laughs> well, folks, you heard it here first, the problematic history of the Razzies. Sorry, can we can, before we move on from that, I mean, can you unpack that a little more? I mean, what do you mean they nominated The Shining for Worst Movie of the Year? For
0: Worst Director, well, I mean, it's just... As you know, uh, whenever a Kubrick movie came out, critical reaction would often be, you know, positive, but there would be dissenting voices. And then usually 10 years down the line, the movie would be um, universally acclaimed as a masterpiece. Does the
1: Razzies, do they have like an established body or committee that votes on these things? You
0: yourself can vote for it if you want to. You can get a membership. Uh, that would put you in the illustrious
1: category of hundreds of people who have a membership. Do you, what do you pay? You pay dues. You do. Whatever? You do pay dues. Because, because, wait. It's okay. So, because the Academy is like, I mean, that you have to like. It's an industry. You have to be like yeah. a nominee or a past nominee or a you have to be invited, like, right? Yeah. But, but so you're, what you're telling me is anybody can get a Razzie's membership? Yes. So this is like the difference. So basically the Academy, they just have like this like super delegate cast that chooses. And the Razzie's are a chaotic populism. That well, decides.
0: yeah, I mean, there's every year there's a there's a short list of mo- of movies then then I guess the Razzie members vote on what they think the worst of the worst are. I mean, I'm just I'm just going to click on a random year just to show you what some of the nominees were in so for 2004 the worst picture as voted on by the members was Catwoman. Worst actor was George W. Bush in Fahrenheit 9/11 as himself. So that's uh that's an example of some of the jokery. Get, getting a
1: little getting a little political there. A little uh, a little
0: silly. He actually won uh, worst screen couple that year. Uh, George W. Bush and either Condoleezza Rice or his pet goat.
1: Yeah,
0: that was worst couple. And in fact, uh, Britney Spears that year won worst supporting actress for the same film, Fahrenheit 9/11. You remember she was in it for like 20 seconds. So that, and that, was,
1: that was a year, like a little, some low-hanging fruit. Some Bush-era libs did like entryism into the Razzies.
0: But, you know, more typical is um, for, for the 40th, which was honoring films from 2009, <laughs> the winner was Cats, of course. Worst actor was John Travolta for some movies you've never heard of. (laughs) Worst supporting actor was James Corden for Cats. Uh, Worst actress was Hilary Duff for a movie called Haunting of Sharon Tate. People don't, they don't watch these movies, obviously. It's just, they're saying Hilary Duff, you know, that, that, well, you know they're 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 being sexist. <laughs> right. You know they're they're saying, "Look at that faded pop star who's in a bad movie." That's what the Razzies do. So anyway, I wouldn't be bringing up the Razzies except the last two years they've had to apologize for things. So, <laughs> so, so. so you know, these people.
1: uh, Folks, the Razzies are, are pledging to do better. They're growing. They're learning. They're changing.
0: These (laughs) people who exist only to get attention,
1: you know, exist to be like the novelty inverse of the Oscars. You know,
0: once a decade, like Ben Affleck will be on a talk show and they'll be like, Hey, did you hear you won a Razzie five years ago? Uh, We have your trophy for you. And he'll be like, Oh, (laughs) isn't that funny that I won a Razzie? And then they get to post that and they get to tweet that. And they get to say, look, Ben Affleck accepted his Razzie. That's right. what they I mean it the thing was founded by a publicist. Right. That's all you need to know.
1: Right. I'm learning so much because I've known about the Razzies like my whole life, but I feel like I didn't know about like the I don't know, like the political economy of the Razzies. Like you're telling me like it really is a racket.
0: Yeah. So um last year in 2022, <laughs> I have an article here from Us Weekly, the headline of which Razzies rescind their Bruce Willis Award following backlash due to aphasia reveal. Quote, we acknowledge that it is not appropriate. I got
1: got lost, by the way, in that.
0: Okay, Uh, I will read a bit from the article. Um, A change of heart. The Razzie Awards have walked back their decision to continue their worst performance by Bruce Willis in 2021 award following the actor's recent health issues. What you need to know is Bruce Willis for the last five or six years has been in like 20 movies a year. You know, you don't see these movies. These right. are straight to straight to streaming, like right. sub-Steven Seagal movies. And if anyone's seen any of them, they'll know. Something seems a little off with Bruce in these, you know. This guy used to be able to act, and now it looks like he's learning his lines phonetically. And while that, it turns out, was the case, he was diagnosed with aphasia. And this was revealed a day or two after they created this award for worst performance by Bruce Willis in a movie for oh 2021. God. So uh, after much thought and consideration, the Razzies have made the decision to rescind <laughs> the Razzie Award given to Bruce Willis. Due we, to,
1: we, do not do, we do not do this lightly. Due to his
0: recently <laughs> disclosed diagnosis, co-founders John Wilson and Mo Murphy said <laughs> in a statement to Us Weekly, if someone's medical condition is a factor in their decision-making <laughs> and or their performance, oh we acknowledge that it is not appropriate to give them a Razzie. In fact, at the same time they rescinded Bruce Willis's award, they rescinded a nomination they gave for Shelley Duvall for The Shining. Okay, I just want to underline that again. They nominated Shelley Duvall as worst actress for
1: The Shining. What uh, is the prejudice against The Shining? I don't they, understand. They didn't like
0: it. They thought it wasn't... Um, <laughs> I, I think they... Shining is
1: a gr- like inarguably a great film. Well, I mean, in,
0: just... in the early 80s, the Razzies did not care for it. Ugh. And it says here in this Entertainment Weekly article... In addition, the Razzies revoked their 42-year-old nomination of Shelley Duvall for her performance in The Shining, citing, quote, extenuating circumstances, unquote, and director Stanley Kubrick's, quote, treatment of her throughout the production, unquote. So you see, the Razzies are woke. They acknowledge that the performance was bad because Stanley Kubrick was too mean to her during the production.
1: They they did this like, you know, 42 years. It's like, it's like an official, it's like when the state like apologizes for some like past brutality or or, or, like discrimination or something.
0: So this year, you know, (laughs) it's, it's a normal year at the Razzies. You know, the nominees for best picture include or worst picture, I mean, sorry, uh, sorry, it's not the Oscars <laughs> folks, it's the Razzies, includes, you know, Morbius Blonde, the uh Marilyn Monroe movie, uh, perennial Why no-
1: like why is that even here? I don't well, know. Well,
0: I think I think a clue might come in the category worst screen couple. Um, or sorry, it's been renamed worst screen combo because there are no couples in it. Uh um Andrew Dominic and his issues with women blonde he's the director of the film so that's the couple that was nominated it has has, they're saying the movie has issues with women um and then they're just and i think the razzies have some nerve saying that somebody else has issues with women given given some of the people they've nominated over the years given that you know anytime any pop diva is in a movie they just give it an automatic rubber stamp nomination right you know right Also in that category this year, Tom Hanks and his latex-laden face and ludicrous accent for Elvis, folks, folks, that's up for worst screen combo. Tom Hanks. Okay, well, I'm not, I'm
1: not going going to the mats for that. (laughs)
0: Latex-laden face. (laughs) (laughs) But the the controversy this year is um, they uh, for worst actress they nominated a child. <laughs> they, they nominated a girl who was 11 years old. Oh
1: my
0: God. <laughs> She's 12 years old now, the star of, of the movie Firestarter, which was a remake, a movie that just came and went without a whole lot of notice. I've never heard of it. They had to reach for this nomination, so they nominated a child. And in this article in Deadline, it says Responding to the widespread uproar over the NOM, the Razzie's John Wilson said, Sometimes you do things without thinking, <laughs> then you are called out for it, then you get it. It's why the Razzies were created in the first place. Oh, goody. There's a full statement below. Um, (laughs) uh, The recent valid criticisms of the choice of 11-year-old Armstrong as a nominee for one of our awards (laughs) brought our attention to how insensitive we've been in this instance. We also believe a public apology is owed to Miss Armstrong and wish to say we regret any hurt she experienced as a result of our choices. Um, having learned from this lesson uh, th- so it goes on to say that the, they're going to institute a rule that nominees have to be over the age of 18 then it says we have never intended to bury anyone's career it is why our redeemer award was created we all make mistakes very much us included since our motto is own your bad that's the, ma- the Razzie's <laughs> motto by the way it's own your bad <laughs> I didn't know that until now <laughs> apparently that's their motto we realize that we ourselves must also live up to it. Oh Sincerely, John Wilson, the Razzie Awards. Um, I can think of some ways he can try to live up to it. <laughs> he can try to own his bad, but but I, I probably shouldn't say them
1: publicly. <laughs> I know that the movie's up for a Razzie this year. Yeah, three years in a row, yeah.
0: Three years in a row. <laughs> yeah. And, and and you have actually said you would like to attend I mean, you were upset because you loved that the film... Dude, if they invited
1: me, I'd be there. Like, they just don't... I won one and I didn't even get invited. I won the (laughs) Razzie. You won the Razzie and and you didn't get invited. the first movie, I won worst actor and and Dakota and I won worst on-screen couple. Right. I completely
0: disagree with the Razzies, but I love that you have such a sense of humor that you were willing to go. You wanted to go.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, I I kind of, I'm so intrigued to see what it's all about. The The whole, whatever, you know, apparently you can just like pay ninety dollars and just become a member online. Right. I think you know, an an establishment an establishment that runs itself like that sort of intrigues me quite a lot. <laughs> um, well, I've got a small item to discuss uh, before we get to our movie on today's episode. I'm still just chuckling thinking about the Razzies, but go ahead. <laughs> I, I feel like I learned a lot from that conversation. I mean, I the Razzies is just something that's had a kind of ambient cultural presence for me. I had no idea, like, what kind of a body it was. I certainly had no idea it was so controversial. And the way you describe it, it just sounds like a kind of... Like, I don't know, some kind of like embattled presidential administration that's just where they're just constantly having to issue these like climb downs and apologies. This thing that was
0: created for people to to have fun with and laugh. (laughs) Folks, have you considered reverse screen combo? It's a real race. It's between Andrew Dominic and his issues with women and Tom Hanks and his latex laden face, folks. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. You have an item.
1: Well, this is a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, a a cross border uh, little item here. Uh, well, I'm going to show you a tweet by a guy called uh, Roman Baber, who is an Ontario Conservative MPP. And the tweet was quote tweeted by Pierre Polievre. Okay. Who is Our the- next Prime Minister. <laughs> uh, possibly uh, the, the uh, newly elected, uh, relatively newly elected uh, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, now, folks, I'm going to describe the tweet here. I mean, just for some background, okay? Roman Baber is a guy who, I don't know, came, you know, I mean, he was like a distant finisher in the race that Polly Evra won. He is, yeah, f- I'm sorry, I described him as a MPP for Conservative Party. He's actually a former MPP. Look, I cannot keep all these guys in my head. He may have been one of the ones that was kicked out over his opposition to, you know, COVID vaccine mandates or something. I can't remember. Anyway, he, he, his leadership campaign was very much... Um, you know, I watched all the debates, so I heard a lot from this guy. His leadership campaign was very much like, you know, like, yeah, anti-COVID restrictions and like, you know, that that kind of thing. Very typical. You know, he's one of these guys, he's kind of got a backstory about like he was born in you know, what was then the USSR or something. So, you know, he's a member of the Conservative Party because, you know, he knows what totalitarianism of the kind that, you know, we're experiencing under COVID. He knows what that is. So pretty, pretty like uh, paint by the numbers, like cookie cutter backstory for a right-wing politician. Anyway, what he's doing here and, you know, Piero retweets this and uh, he says, someone arrest this dangerous man and a little winking emoji. And Roman Babber has a picture of his stove. And he says, me and my lady will drive my V6 Jeep to the store that gives out plastic bags, then drink alcohol while cooking red meat on her gas stove. We're not bothering you. Don't bother us. Oh my Hashtag god, I'm so triggered. Leave us alone. I'm triggered, Luke. Okay, so like, look, uh, I think that this this type of right-wing, I mean he's basically actually like smashing together like three types of like dumb right-wing, you know, meme, right? But this is like a genre of right-wing meme. This like, yeah, we're, I'm triggering the libs by, I'm like breaking a taboo that like I am inventing, like I'm pulling the tab out of the ether to be like, are you triggered? And I think the stove thing, obviously this is like has something to do with, you know, conspiratorial stuff about how the Biden administration and, you know, Trudeau and 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 co here you know, we all know both those technocratic, centrist, liberal, you know, it's firmly neoliberal politicians I just mentioned. Both of them are actually um, communists who are engaged in, you know, a radical uh, Great Reset project as part of, you know, globalist plot to um, instantiate Chinese communism worldwide or, or something. Anyway, that's kind of what's like looming behind like a meme like this is that is that kind of bullshit. But, you know, it's part of this kind of broader right wing thing of like, Anytime there's like, you know, an imagined like liberal taboo against something, like, oh, you're, you know, oh, red meat, uh, it's unhealthy for me to eat that every day. Well, how do you like this massive tray of steaks that I eat this every single day? What are you going to do about it? Or, you know, I'm going to leave the gas stove on because climate change isn't real or whatever. Anyway, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring this up just, I'm not bringing this up just to talk about the dumb right wing meme. I'm bringing this up because I have a complaint about this meme, which is not the one Roman Baber wants me to have. What bothers me about this is like, why can't our conservative party have its own bullshit memes this is like you know the low-grade uh cheaply made right-wing kitsch that's being imported wholesale from the united states this is what fucking free trade has given us you know like, why does our Conservative Party have to be like derivatively reactionary? You I, mean, I mean
0: this is a broader problem with
1: Canada generally.
0: It's like so much of our culture is. They're like supposed this. to be
1: there's yeah, right. They're, the Conservative Party, it's like I don't ask I <laughs> I don't ask much from the Conservative Party of Canada. But all they want are a bunch of Anglo Canadian reactionary, you know, monarchists. And they can't even do that. It's like you should fuck god damn it, man. In the nineteenth century, Canadian Conservatives, uh the fathers of Confederacy, Federation, they didn't like the United States. You know why? Because they saw it as a bastion of like chaotic, anarchic, democratic liberalism. And they're like, they were like, we're going to build the wall. We're going to have massive like tariff barriers and stuff like that. And then like a hundred years later, you know, the conservative thing in Canada is to like, you just have like the fetish that conservatives used to have for Great Britain. They've just now transplanted the United States such that like a guy like this, he can't even make his own stupid meme. It it drives me fucking crazy. So, what would you like to see? What are some of the issues you would like to see
0: become central to the conservative, <laughs> uh, the conservative mind in Canada, different from American issues? Some uniquely Canadian issues. Do you want more pipeline stuff?
1: No, I mean they are—they already love that, and that's no different from like Keystone XL, right? It was like a that was going to be a cross-border pipeline. They're—they're they're all over. it. They're all over that shit. I don't know. It's like I—I've I've went uh, several times, as I've uh, recounted in the past on the show to uh, you know what used to be the largest annual uh, gathering of the conservative movement in Canada. I, I went several times, um, and it's very interesting. And uh, I was <laughs> I was persistently annoyed by one thing that every single time, which is, God damn it, it's just Americans here. I mean, you know, it's not always, right? But it's like always they'd have some, like, marquee guest where it's... I remember, okay, I don't know if I ever mentioned this, but one year they had Ron Paul. I don't think I was actually there for that one. But Ron Paul was there, and um, before the conference was question period in the House of Commons. And I guess Ron Paul was in the gallery. And this is when the conservatives were in government. And throughout all of question period... They were all like like it was very visible they were all like nervously looking up at the gallery because like ron paul was there and they didn't want to like you know look like i don't know insufficiently reactionary in front of ron paul or something incredibly stupid and like you see the same thing with like you know anti-vax stuff in Canada or whatever like whatever kind of receding uh tides there are of you know the convoy from last year you know when there are marches you know there's, there's basically no mandates in Canada anymore there's like you don't have to wear a mask you know but anyway they're still mad about it do they still have the march every weekend they do they have a march on Saturday it's gotten I mean it's like at this point it's so small it's like it's kind of embarrassing like I don't know why they have it But if you look at any of those marches, or like recently the Liberal cabinet was meeting in Hamilton... Maddie was showing me some clips of it and like you see these people who are like yeah they're heckling you know Trudeau and his cabinet ministers or whatever and like, there's just like a guy with like an American flag right it's the same with same with like the march that happens in Toronto every weekend where it's like you know there's literally there's literally like stop the steal guys like you know guy with I mean it's always it's the at this point it's like I know the individual guys because there's so few of them but there's like it's like a Trump guy and I don't know we deserve a less provincial type of reactionary is all I'm saying
0: well Britain obviously Has a much longer conservative tradition than the United States does. Have you sensed that Britain has kind of become co opted by the US conservative movement in a similar way?
1: It's interesting. There have been some attempts to do that, and I don't think they've really been very successful. So, you know, Nigel Farage, right, the former leader of UKIP, former member of the European Parliament, Probably, arguably, one of the most influential figures in British politics in the 21st century, despite the fact that he never actually won a seat. He lost, I don't know, five or six times running for parliament. But uh, tremendously influential, uh, very influential in shifting British politics to the right. I mean, he had a, this whole idea, which was, I think, you know, it's been taken up by various people. I don't think it's really ever gone anywhere of like, we need to establish the Anglosphere. So uh, there is a wing of that in Canada. Like we do have a kind of, I, I think it's like a sub-genre of like Anglo-Canadian uh, Tory where you know, they do have at least a sort of residual attachment to, you know, Britishness in some way. And, you know, they're into that idea. They're like, well, what if we had free trade between, well, they'll say the Commonwealth countries, but what they mean is Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and Great Britain Various other Commonwealth countries not represented there. You can maybe fill in the blanks as to why. But And, you know, one year at the Manning Conference, uh, which is the conference I was mentioning that I, I went to a few times, they had a guy who was, and actually, come to think of it, it might have even been Farage himself, was there plugging this idea. And I my, my recollection is that it was not... It met a sort of, like, quite tepid reception. I just think, well, there's all there's all kinds of things that could be said here. But if I have a point in all of this, it's that, like, the writing Canada is, like, so thoroughly Americanized at this point. That it's actually abandoned a lot of, like, the signifiers that originally defined it, which, like, were pretty much exclusively drawn from the British context and actually, like, defined themselves against the Americans. So it's, an, you know, an interesting cultural transformation that's happened. But, you know, yeah, what it amounts to is, like, conservative backbenchers are, like, recycling, like, the worst memes from, like, you know, MAGA Twitter or whatever.
0: Well, we've talked about how Canada has changed, but we haven't talked about how a small island in Costa Rica (laughs) has changed. That's right. It's not 1993 anymore. It's 2015, and we're about to travel to Jurassic World. This summer discover the one place where your family
1: will create unforgettable memories welcome to jurassic world welcome to jurassic world welcome to jurassic world welcome Welcome. Welcome. welcome welcome to jurassic world of PG-13.
0: Yeah, I don't know what to say about this one. I I saw it when it was in a theater. I didn't like it this time. I thought I would have more fun watching it, but to be honest, I got a little tired of it.
1: It's, it's interesting because I mean, this is one of those films where I don't think that fundamentally you and I really have any disagreement about it. I didn't hugely enjoy watching it. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have watched it today if it wasn't for work. Um, I had you know more fun with it you know when we went to see it in a theater. Well, uh, oh, I know, was thinking that I did, and-
0: I did have more fun when I saw this in a theater. And there is something about, you know, a movie like this, there is something about just having it on a giant screen with an audience and having your, your freaking popcorn in front of you <laughs> and hearing the sound and seeing a big T-Rex on a screen that is much different even a movie that's as not good as this one.
1: Much different than just watching it on Netflix. I suppose we should say what the movie is. Oh, yeah. It's Jurassic World. Uh-huh. Um, so this is the 2015, I mean, colloquially referred to as like the 2015 uh, Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard, Jurassic Park. That's what it, And that's what it is. The
0: franchise <laughs> reboot. And we're talking about this movie because, you know, this is a political blockbuster. <laughs> I mean, the reason we put it on is because we both remembered, oh yeah, that movie's pretty sexist, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah. So the, the this movie has been a long time coming. It's actually one that's been uh, requested a number of times by our Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash Us, Come and get an extra episode a week, plus extra bonus content. Five Yankee dollars a month, that's all it is. Yeah, five Yankee dollars to subscribe at the Al Gore level. Anyway, there have been a number of requests for Jurassic World, and I think You know, this is something where, you know, our our listeners, our fans, you know, they they really know us at this point. They know the kinds of things we like or, you know, not necessarily in this case, like as movies, but, you know, find worthy and enjoyable uh, topics of discussion. And I have a feeling that this one is more is going to be more fun to discuss than it was uh, to watch. I mean, in in my case, I mean, this might have been the third time I've seen it. Woof. So it's like by this point, you know, it's like squeezing blood from a stone.
0: Yeah, I, I like I like good movies. I like movies that are that are that are
1: nice. I like I like beauty. This, this from the guy who made me sit through Mondo Kane in, in last week's show.
0: I had a lot of beauty in that. Didn't you like those birds in the sky? Yeah,
1: I, I guess the birds were pretty good. Yeah. But hey, this movie's got birds. It's got and that a, movie had real animals dying, not like this <laughs> shit with these
0: <laughs> fake CGI dinosaurs dying.
1: Anyway, my my memory of this movie, and I think you know why. I was thinking of it, and I suspect why a lot of our fans were thinking about it as, you know, a possible episode topic, is that, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about how one of the recurring characteristics of the modern blockbuster is a type of incoherence, where, you know, a bunch of things are drawn kind of from the ether of the culture, sort of ambiently uh, evoked, but there's kind of no thread. It's like, is this a lib movie? Is this a reactionary movie? Often it's not really clear. I would say you have certain types of blockbuster, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe being an obvious example, where, you know, like they are like liberal films, but I mean, they've, they're like reactionary liberal films. But often what you have is, is much more of a soup. What stood out about this movie, you know, the first time I saw it, was how, uh, yeah, I mean, there's this quite overtly misogynistic, I mean, even anti-feminist romantic plot in it. And we certainly found that again uh, revisiting the movie, but there was a whole bunch of other stuff we noticed. There there are a number of kind of ideological strands that are mashed together, which don't uh, really speak to each other. They're not really holistically coherent in that way. They don't form a coherent whole, but they do form, I would say, different political and ideological perspectives that are all housed... Just like the different species of dinosaur on the island in this very expensive, very polished, and very paint-by-the-numbers reboot blockbuster.
0: It's also interesting because this came out the same year, 2015, as Star Wars The Force Awakens. They were the number one and number two movies of the year,
1: box office-wise. Right. And quality-wise, you know, I would by, argue. By the way, do you know how much... Money this movie made at the box office over a billion dollars. It's I'm, over. Yeah. It's like it's a. Uh, it made one point, nearly one point seven billion on a budget of one hundred and fifty million. The, the new one, the one
0: that came out last year, Jurassic World three made over a billion dollars. And I, <laughs> I feel like you know what's that famous Pauline Kael quote where she's like, "How did Nixon win? I didn't know anyone who voted for him." <laughs> this is how I feel about Jurassic World three. <laughs> anyway, as I said, this and Force Awakens came out the same year. Force Awakens came out maybe maybe six months after this one did. And they're both key in the development of sort of Hollywood franchise filmmaking. The Force Awakens really helped popularize that model
1: of, you know, a soft reboot with you got some of the original cast, you got some new cast. Well, and and I will say the act of doing that, I mean, to me, I mean, you know, I don't like that film. And one of the things I don't like about it is... The fact that it's like both a sequel and a reboot in the universe of Star Wars, it's technically a sequel, but it's like everything in it is like, oh, here's like a, here's like a desert planet and it's not Tatooine, but it's like, it could be, but it's not. Uh, Another thing. It it
0: just beat for beat follows a new home.
1: Yeah. And it's like, oh yeah, what if it's the Death Star? But now it's like the Indominus Rex Death Star, which is, which is kind of what this movie's doing as well. But another thing you pointed out about that movie, which probably has some analogs in Jurassic World. Is in that movie, there's like too many characters and it's because they're doing like market segmentation within the movie. They're like, well, this got to play in China. So we need some like surrogate characters for that audience.
0: The first Jurassic Park, the Steven Spielberg one from 1993, you know, he's a he's a master of creating a marketable product. So that one, it was like, well, you got two kid characters, you know, to get the kid audience. Yeah. Then You've got the adult, you got the love story for the older audience. So it, there, there's a version of that that's kind of always happened in movies at this level, that kind of market thinking. That four quadrant market (laughs) thinking. But yeah, like as different (laughs) markets, you know, expand and contract, it changes. This one, I mean, had it started being developed six months later, you can be sure Sam Neill would have been in it because, you know, Harrison Ford being in. The Force Awakens is huge, and like Sam Neill, Jeff Goldblum, Lord Dern, they're in the sequels. Fucking
1: Harrison Ford is gonna be in like the new. Ind- he's Indiana Jones. It's coming. He's like eighty something, and he's gonna be Indiana Jones. I'm again. kind of excited for I'm that. Kind of I don't know. Forward to. I like, want to see our boy. Would you in rather have Chris time?
0: Pratt as Indiana Jones? <laughs> I kind of like or, the or idea. Or Shia yeah,
1: yeah, I like the
0: idea of an old Indiana Jones. Let's let's see what he's got.
1: But you're right that that's a you know I hadn't really thought about that, but it's that's a, a further development in the sort of you know blockbuster. Buster. in the culture we now live in where like everything is like a copy of a copy of a copy of, of, of a sequel of a reboot of a you know whatever but they hadn't quite figured that out uh in 2015 this thing that you're mentioning where yeah now it's like you you would have like you would chris pratt still would have been in this movie but then there would have just been like a whole extra plot where it's like oh also laura dern and sam neill are in it
0: and that's why they're in the new one the one that just came out right um, right however this movie also is about being a reboot yeah <laughs> Like, it is about, like, it incorporates that into the text. And we'll expand on that as we talk about the plot.
1: Yeah, I know, folks, we just did our Black Adam episode, like, two or three weeks ago. And we're kind of taking license with this one. But there's a few different things going on in this movie. But watching it again, it was abundantly clear. This is another movie where, yeah, the algorithm is conscious of itself.
0: Okay, so the plot is that off-screen, somewhere between the last time we were in this park and now... Richard Attenborough died, but he gave his park to a a pretty good billionaire. Mm -hmm. Not a great billionaire, but an okay billionaire, (laughs) played by Irfan Khan. And he has taken Jurassic Park and figured out how to turn it into an actual amusement park. The last time we saw Richard Attenborough, he was saying, you know, just let the dinosaurs live in peace. But clearly other cooler heads
1: (laughs) prevailed. Well, it's so funny because what he says is John Hammond entrusted me with the park and he never once mentioned profit. And you know, uh, that's how Hollywood felt for a while. You know, they were after the Jurassic Park 3 came out, they were going to let sleeping dogs lie. And in 2015, it was like, all right, it's time to make some money, folks.
0: So anyway, Irfan Khan, he's like, he's, as I said, a pretty good billionaire, but he'd be a a great billionaire if he kept closer eyes on uh, what was happening in his park. He's employed a couple of people. There's B.D. Wong returning from the original film as one of the scientists who has been leading the charge of creating newer and better and cooler dinosaurs through genetic stuff. Uh, and Irfan Khan, when he finds out about this, he says, well, what are, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why have you created these freaks, these monstrosities of natures?" And B.D. Wong says to him, no, you don't get it. Um, you told us to do this. Uh, we're creating, we're creating bigger and better monsters. That,
1: that, that's right. So the the younger brother character, there's two kids in the movie, older brother and younger brother. The younger brother character, he's like a dinosaur nerd. And when he and his older brother first arrive on the island, you know, they meet up with their aunt, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. She helps administer the island and the park. And she explains to them, she's like, look, no one's impressed by just a dinosaur anymore. You know, because the kid is like, at, throat, at various points throughout the movie, like Little Billy or whatever his name is, is pointing out, like, you know, that's not a real dinosaur. And she's like, you know, consumers, you know, our shareholders and your consumers, they you know they wanted them to be you know bigger and better. So I mean the you know the the, the subtext here is not that difficult to discern. And I mean according to uh, the director himself. Oh yeah, that nonentity. That's right. The director was a guy by the name of Colin Trevorrow, and he he says uh, the dinosaur is meant to embody humanity's worst tendencies. We're surrounded by wonder and yet we want more and we want it bigger, faster, louder, better. And the, in the dinosaurs world, are In populism. the world of the movie, right? Well, he says in the world of the movie the animal is designed uh, based on a series of corporate focus groups, which. Spider-Man pointing at himself. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's an amazing thing to put in a movie where the plot of the movie is like, okay, folks, you like the original Jurassic Park. Well, what if we made something that's bigger than a T-Rex and that's the like fulcrum of the movie? So that's some (laughs) of what's going on. The movie is indicting itself. Yeah. 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 yeah, That's some (laughs) of what's going on. But then there are some other
0: characters too. You've got Bryce Dallas Howard as a busy career woman. And she's the aunt of these two kids that Luke alluded to earlier, who uh, the kids' parents are probably getting a divorce. And they've just said, hey, can you take our kids for us for the day? Take them to Jurassic World. Let them have fun so they can have one last fun time before (laughs) we destroy the family. (laughs) And uh, Bryce Dallas Howard is having trouble with this because she's a career woman. She has no time for kids. she, She
1: doesn't. Yeah, the movie just beats us over the head with this. She's a total failure as an an aunt because she's too busy uh, with her spreadsheets and her focus groups, uh, you know, right away. uh, And let's
0: be clear, she's actually not good at her job either, because you remember that early conversation. I could point to a million examples, but you remember that early conversation she has with Irfan Khan, the billionaire, where he says, so how are the people? Are they happy? How are the animals? Are they happy? And she's like, well, our uh, our data shows us that happiness among the customers is at uh, 92%. <laughs> right, right. But it's hard to measure for the dinosaurs. <laughs> and the billionaire says, no, no, no. Look at their eyes. Right, right. Look at like you can you can tell if they're happy. You so see-
1: yeah, so the, right. So this is this is an important point because you know she is portrayed this character as somebody who is so tied up in her job that like she is unable to be like she greets her she greets her uh, nephews and then she just talks to them for like five minutes and then she like hands them off to a helper or something and is like, oh, I'll see you around seven. Or actually, no, I have a thing at seven. How about eight? Uh, will you be in bed by eight? Do you have different bedtimes? You know, she doesn't know how old they are, all this kind of stuff. And yeah, and that exchange that you just recounted, I mean, it's like the implicit message there is like, yes, she's so wound up in her job that like she can only think like quantitatively. Like she is without emotion or passion. Well, because she <laughs>
0: she wasn't born for this. She doesn't have like the, the dents in her skull are such that she can't, she can't do the job. But what she can do is she can memorize the spreadsheets. You know, it's almost as if it's almost as if someone like her is not naturally meant to have a job like this. That's kind of the implication, don't you think? And this becomes further underlined when she goes to have an exchange with the character played by your favorite, everyone's favorite, (laughs) Mr. Chris Pratt.
1: He's a bit of a rogue. He's shown living on the island. I I love the way that he he lives in like a little trailer that's like nowhere near the dinosaur city. He's by a lake in this little (laughs) shack. It's (laughs) the same neighborhood that Rambo is living in now. Yeah, yeah. He's like the the first shot of him, like when she goes to visit, he's introduced before, but when she goes to visit him, the movie has- Rambo, we need you to come out of retirement. (laughs) No, I don't don't do that anymore. (laughs) Yeah, the movie has to like, it has to let you know, like folks in the world of this movie, you know, there are these hard categories there are men and there are women, and there are alphas and there are betas. Chris Pratt right away is encoded as an alpha. They, like she, she approaches him, and like he's he's like squatted over a motorcycle that he appears to be manually fixing. It's just like such a heavy handed kind of avatar of like, uh, yeah, rugged, independently minded alpha masculinity. And later in the movie, Chris Pratt, he has these like three velociraptors that are his like children. And one of the kids is like, who's the alpha? And he goes, you're looking at him, kid. That's the universe of this movie. It's like throw in some mythic archetypes. and You basically got like Jordan Peterson's ontology of gender at work here.
0: Now, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt at one point went on a date, apparently didn't go too well, so now they have a purely business relationship.
1: Yeah, well, he he asked her, uh, she says something about spreadsheets or something, and he's like, this is why there wasn't a second date. And she says, I didn't want there to be a second date. And then he's like, well, who prints an itinerary for a night out? she then you know takes issue with his clothes you know he wore he wore shorts to the restaurant or something i guess mr misrani thinks since you're able to control the raptors see it's all about control with you i don't control the raptors it's a relationship it's based on mutual respect That's why you and I never had a second date. Excuse me, I never wanted a second date. Who prints
0: out an itinerary for a night out?
1: I'm an organized person. (laughs) What kind of a diet doesn't allow tequila? All of them, actually. Well. And what kind of a man shows up to a date in board shorts? It's Central America, is hot. Okay, okay, can we just focus on the asset, please? So they went on a date, it didn't work out, is what the film wants you to know.
0: And she comes over because, you know, the bosses are saying, we gotta get this guy over here to control the dinosaurs. And she says... We we gotta get you over there to control the dinosaurs. Uh, she doesn't say those exact words. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> and he says you don't control dinosaurs. You have a relationship with dinosaurs. You now, Chris Pratt as a model of masculinity is placed in conversation and contrast with several other characters.
1: He's, like, paternal and also just, like, parental. Like, he has the necessary instincts to be a good parent, including just, (laughs) like, emotion. A capacity to think about the world using more than, like, focus groups and numbers and spreadsheets and, like, being a workaholic. And this is contrasted with Bryce Dallas Howard's character, who who has to learn those things throughout the movie.
0: Now, there's a scene early on when Chris Pratt is next to this, like, raptor cage with a couple of other characters. There's one guy next to him who's, like... The beta he has to save the beta from the raptors <laughs> yeah he yeah. controls the raptors but then there's another character played by vincent d'onofrio full ham mode you
1: know wow, you you liked this this is one thing about the film i think i enjoyed. i enjoyed
0: vincent d'onofrio's
1: full throttle performance so uh, g- Vincent D'Onofrio, formerly Gomer Pyle. From uh, Full Metal Jacket, yes. And uh, apparently Orson Welles in Ed Wood as well. That's correct. Yeah. So he
0: is the worst guy in the movie. He's the baddest of the bads, worse than B.D. Wong, who's just following orders. This guy wants to take over the park and militarize the dinosaurs. He says, look, we've created these dinosaurs out of our laboratories with our codes and our genetics. Mm-hmm. We can create a slave race of dinosaurs to do our bidding. They won't talk back to us. Us. They're they're deadly, they're killers, and if they disobey us, we fucking kill them because they have no rights. And
1: he and he justifies this on kind of humanist grounds. Like there's a kind of utilitarianism to it. He's like, well, think about all the lies we'll save, by not having like soldiers at the front. We'll have dinosaurs.
0: But as Chris Pratt explains to him, you know, Chris Pratt's an alpha. You know, he, he owns the dinosaurs, but he respects them. So he says, you know, that that's no good. Well, anyway, I mean, wouldn't you believe it? Jurassic World, it has the best technicians in the world, they've got they've got the super strong. I've I've got a gun here and I fired the gun at the glass and it won't break. That's how strong the
1: glass is. That's one of the problems with like relaunching something like Jurassic Park, which is, you know, there's not a lot of room to expand the lore. You know, it's a concept that was, you know, very good, very well executed, particularly in the first Jurassic Park. And then once you do it again, it's like, okay, where's the suspense? You get to the island and it's like... Uh, oh uh, we've got we've made a new kind of dinosaur that's even more dangerous than a t-rex and it's like four times the size and it's you know we created through gene splicing it's not even a real dinosaur but don't worry because we have the best structural engineers in the world and it's never gonna get out and it's like of course it's gonna fucking get out that's never in doubt from the second it's introduced before
0: we go further with the plot i'd like to pause on chris pratt for a moment because (laughs)
1: look
0: i don't i don't like him obviously I, I, i mean whatever i don't hate them either but i just think it's interesting much like how the scientists have created like better dinosaurs that also (laughs) are not real also don't have souls i feel like the technicians who are creating our movie stars now are doing something similar you know they've in a lab they created Dwayne the rock johnson they created ryan reynolds they created this gentleman chris pratt they were like build me a better jack nicholson Builds me a better Harrison Ford. Or in the and,
1: case of the rock, like yeah, build we need it like what's this generation's Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yeah, and yeah. like
0: any any of the flaws, like let's airbrush away the flaws. Let's pump up the, the stuff we like.
1: Well, li- I mean, literally, like Chris Pratt, it's like, you know, someone figured out that, you know, hey, if we, if we put this guy on like a training regimen, we, we use spreadsheets and apps in the right way. It's like we can mold him into like, you know, a blockbuster action star. I will say one thing about Chris Pratt, which is that, I mean, he's pretty funny in Parks and Recreation. Like, oh, I, think, I'm sure. I, think he, I think he has a certain talent as a comedy actor. And yeah, I don't really buy him in this type of role either myself. So
0: what goes wrong in the park? Uh, everything goes wrong in the park. All you need to know is the dinosaurs get out. And when Irfan Khan dies in a helicopter accident, there's a power vacuum at Jurassic uh, World. I almost <laughs> said park.
1: And then, there's, and then and then a coup begins to take shape. So
0: Vincent D'Onofrio tries to take <laughs> it over, and he makes a forceful play for it. But of course, you can't control nature. We learn that again and again. So the dinosaurs kill him. The only thing that can bring down the big bad the real big bad, which is the, the T-Rex who's been infiltrated with raptor genes.
1: Right, and importantly, the, right, so the T-Rex is supposed to be like an abomination, and it's an abomination that exists purely because there's been, you know, this kind of surreptitious drive to like, take the park away from John Hammond's dream and to make it, you know, a, a profit-driven enterprise. So within the universe of the film anyway, there is kind of this like soft, you know, anti-corporate, anti-consumerist critique or whatever, but the, the problem being that this movie, its entire existence is just like a vehicle to ring profit from the original Jurassic Park, which is now just a floating piece of IP to be monetized. And the other thing about this movie, right, it's like there's there's actually a line in it where, you know, someone's complaining about all of the, the, the corporate brands that have like partnered with the park. And this movie is so full of product placement. It's just beating you over the head with like Starbucks. There's, I think it's Lexus or maybe Mitsubishi or maybe both uh, of I like when it.
0: Chris Pratt took a big old swig of Coca-Cola. Right. Right.
1: In the scene where, uh, you know, you go, you see Chris Pratt's like Rambo-like dwelling and yeah, the camera's panning up to him and he's like hunched over, you know, just alpha working on his like uh, motorcycle. You know, and you're like, oh, what's gonna happen? Is he gonna like take an alpha swig of a beer? And it's like, yeah, he, dr- he drinks the Coca-Cola. Incidentally, I love uh, the type of product placement that you get in a movie that costs 150 million dollars because intuitively it doesn't really make any sense. You're like, why would like does Starbucks or Coca-Cola or like any of the big auto manufacturers like they have a global presence. Do they do they actually need this? Well, they they do
0: obviously. As <laughs> as Tracy Flick told us, the reason that they stay number 1 is because they invest in being number 1. They become ubiquitous like coca-cola runs ads because if they didn't run ads you would forget that they are fucking
1: coca-cola it is very funny to think you know yeah once like a brand gets sufficiently large visibility isn't enough it's like that's for the little guys that's for the little brands that's no longer enough you need full spectrum dominance hegemony yeah right it has to be like if there's a movie that just features like okay it's jurassic world we got like upper middle class patrons who've like come to this like special island or whatever where would they be shopping what kind of coffee would they drink what would they drive what soft drink they're they're not (laughs)
0: paying for that advertising to get you to go buy a starbucks after the movie although they'd appreciate that sure they're paying to infect your dream
1: that's right that's right we've now colonized your fantasy world as well like what are you gonna do about it
0: Okay, there's another character who's important, who's the most beta of the beta males. He's working the control panel at um, Jurassic World <laughs> Control Center.
1: And, th- and this guy's another, like, the algorithm becoming conscious of itself character. Because in his first scene, you know, he's
0: working, <laughs> tapping away to keyboard, and he's wearing a vintage Jurassic Park shirt from the original Richard Attenborough Park and Bryce Dallas Howard says don't you think that's a bit insensitive to be wearing i mean tragedies happened there he says some version of yeah but you know like that park was real you know the dinosaurs there that john hammond made they were they were real <laughs> Not like these genetically modified dinosaurs of today. And, and he's
1: right. So, th- this character is like not just an audience surrogate, he's a fan surrogate. He, in an odd way, is sort of indicting again, indicting the movie. She chastises him because his desk is really disorganized. On his desk are a bunch of dinosaur action figures, and he, he describes it as like to, I like to think of it not as disorganized, but as you know, a somewhat chaotic but you know, stable order being held in like careful balance.
0: <laughs> now, through Throughout the movie, a a sort of dichotomy is established between John Hammond, you know, and everything he represents, which honestly didn't seem that great to me in the first movie, but (laughs) never mind. He represents a guy who loves dinosaurs and wants to share dinosaurs with the world. And he represents something real. And then there's Vincent D'Onofrio and the various capitalists who want to create something impure with this vision. And when the two boys, the two kids, are out lost in the wilderness, they stumble on the old Jurassic Park. They stumble on the the atrium from the 1993 movie. And they say, wow, look at this. <laughs> this is where the real shit happened. Yeah. And then they go to the garage. Yeah. They go to the garage and, and like... Chris Pratt goes to the garage, too, and they they take the old Jurassic Park they, they Jeeps. Named, yeah,
1: they name the specific brand of Jeep, the, you know, 92 Mitsubishi or whatever it was. And then, you know, I it's been a while since I've seen original Jurassic Park. I think it was when we did an episode on it in the last uh, two years or so. But I'm sure if you've seen it more recently or if you're super familiar with the original trilogy, I bet there's all kinds of Easter eggs in this sequence. Like, there's a museum... To the original movies contained within this movie,
0: so the movie is saying, you know, we're reinventing <laughs> the worlds. We're we're taking Jurassic Park as a it's concept. not a good.
1: It's un, it's not good. It's unnatural. We're like doing we're gene splicing. Okay, the but original but, Jurassic but, but, Park. but the thing <laughs> is, they're
0: taking it to exciting new levels too. But then they're also like, we gotta channel the chi of the original <laughs> yes. Jurassic Park movie. We have to get we have to get that Spielberg energy. You know, John Hammond and Spielberg, I think, are kind of equated here. It's like, they're both the original guys. They're the pure guys who just wanted to share wonder. This was before, like, commerce got that's in the way. That's right, that's right. Because, of course, 1993's yeah. Jurassic Park yeah. was a
1: purely yeah.
0: selfless artistic enterprise. Steven
1: Spielberg, a man we all know, has, you know, has never never given the time of day to a focus group. <laughs> a focus group approaches him, he uh, he looks into in the eye, and he says, "Good, I bid you good day, sir. <laughs> But then
0: there, there's another scene, though. There's another very important scene that contradicts all of this, where you remember Irfan Khan is talking to B.D. Wong and, and he says, what are you doing? Why are you contaminating the dinosaurs? Why are you creating these monstrosities of nature? And B.D. Wong says, don't you see? This was never real. The dinosaurs that John Hammond made, right. they were fake. Right. And right, he's right. right. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. right, and I think it's interesting that that's in the movie, along yeah, with all this like, other. It's stuff. like
1: original Jurassic Park was a copy of a copy too. Yeah, <laughs> so that's
0: interesting. I think it's interesting that the movie allows that in, just as a as a subject of discussion. <laughs>
1: Let's come back to the uh, the Bryce Dallas Howard character yes, please. And, and you know her arc throughout the movie. Just to come back to the very strange and overt misogyny of this movie, this kind of a helper character who you know she outsources her nephews to when they first arrive on the island. There is a scene in the movie, the most graphic death scene in this in this entire movie. I mean, this this basically watches like almost like a family movie. There's you know. I mean, I would say it's less scary. It's less violent than, you know, original Jurassic Park. You know, there's not really gore. There's a little bit of blood, not much. There's a scene where, you know, the Indominus Rex or whatever it's called kills an army guy, but he basically just stamps on him. But there's an exception to this, which is that this helper character who, you know, they they cast this lady who, you know, looks like, you know, someone you'd see in a magazine. Like she's like out of central casting. And there's a scene in this movie where, she is just like brutally killed. And it's like the most drawn out death in this entire movie.
0: Interesting, because she's done nothing really to earn such a protracted death. She's not like the lawyer in the first No, movie. no, no.
1: But what she's done is that she's encoded like the Bryce Dallas Howard character at the start of the movie. Like she's also encoded as like she's a hardworking career professional.
0: And also, she's carrying around these boys who their parents are going to divorce. So she represents the breakdown of the family.
1: That's right. That's right. And so the film has to punish her for these transgressions. And boy, does it ever punish her. There's this uh, big tank in the middle of the park. Vincent
0: D'Onofrio doesn't die this badly.
1: (laughs) It's crazy. And the scientist uh, doesn't die, who's like actually the architect of this whole thing. He doesn't die at all. He gets away. But uh, there's this big like tank in the middle of the park where there's like some kind of like giant aquatic dinosaur shark like thing that lives in there. And first, this character uh, whose name's Zara, played by Katie McGrath, she gets like first dropped down into the water by some kind of pterodactyl like thing that's escaped. You know, the bunch of them escaped from the aviary after the helicopter crash. And then it's pulling her up in the sky. And then this giant like prehistoric reptile, which I think is the biggest thing in the movie. It's like the size of a blue whale, jumps out of the water and just devours her hole as she's screaming. And this is after, you know, a minute or two long death sequence. No other character in the movie gets this. Now the movie is able to save... Bryce Dallas Howard character. And it saves her by basically uh, putting her in her place. So at the start of the movie, you know, she's very cold to Chris Pratt. She appears to have no desire to date, let alone, you know, have a family, no sexuality at all. Throughout the movie, as things get more and more chaotic, and also as she, you know, visibly loses more and more layers of clothes, she gets more and more attracted to Chris Pratt to the point where at the end, they have this little banter where it's like, what do we do now? And then he says, well, stay together, I guess.
0: Uh, the chemistry is off the charts. I'm sure you'll agree. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. She suddenly develops this like overweening concern for her nephews. She develops this maternal instinct towards them, which don't forget is important because their parents are getting divorced, like their family's breaking down. At the end, it's basically like, well, now Chris Pratt, who's this guy they've known for 24 hours, like he's their new dad. Like David Wallace from the office, who's the who's their real dad, he's he's no longer gonna be their dad. And their aunt is their new mom. And you know, she's not gonna have a job anymore because the park is obviously going to be shut down. And, you know, Chris Pratt, we, we learn he's like a Navy veteran, so he can go back to the Navy. So, you know, an order has been restored. Things are as it should be. Don't mess with nature, whether it's gene-splicing dinosaurs or, you know, tampering with the, tampering with the uh, immortal chemistry of the uh, American nuclear family.
0: Tree frogs can modulate their infrared output. We use strands from their DNA to adapt to a tropical climate, but... I never imagined... Who authorized you to do this? You did. Bigger, scarier, um, cooler, I believe is the word that you use in your memo. You cannot have an animal with exaggerated predator features without the corresponding behavioral traits. What you're doing
1: here, what you have done. The board will shut down this park, sees your work, everything you've built.
0: You know, vampires were a big thing like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, But a character who they haven't figured out how to successfully revive directly is Frankenstein and the Frankenstein monster. And for a long time, I thought, well, the concerns embodied in that story are just, you know, Victorian era concerns. They're like, Playing God, you know it's the death of God. Well, type but stuff.
1: isn't isn't that something you see in like you know Godzilla or even in this movie? Well, this is what
0: I'm getting to right. because uh, last week I went to see a new movie that's quite successful at the box office called Megan, which is about Alison Williams plays this coder, this designer at this toy company who comes up with this really realistic, lifelike doll, this robot doll who is algorithmically able to you know protect the child, respond, you know learn responds to everything in the room, keeps accumulating knowledge so that it could comfort the child and protect the child from, you know, uh, all sorts of threats. And, you know, as you can imagine, uh, this robot quickly becomes smarter than everyone and starts to become violent. You know, it has, it's a sociopath, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's basically a Frankenstein story. It's not directly about the death of God. Uh, what it's about is, you know, we've, we've perfected the algorithm so much. AI has become so evolved. You know, we've, we've created artificial intelligence to the point where, like, it's doing things better than us. And that's scary. There's been a lot of talk lately about, uh, I mean, I actually find this kind of chilling, all this stuff with like AI generated art, which I mean, what the, f- the first second I heard about it, I thought, well, who the fuck would want that? But apparently there are a couple of people who do want it. And you can imagine, you know, after so many years of, uh, I don't know, like when the Marvel Cinematic Universe becomes like the dominant cultural thing, when all of these streaming TV shows that are basically sort of written and directed by committee and built around the algorithm become dominant cultural things. Of course, the human factor is going to become less important. And if you can somehow like get the AI such that it can create, you know, the best picture of Batman, you know, a picture of Batman that satisfies more fans than, you know, me and my little pencil can do, then that could conceivably become a threat to actual artists. And yeah, I thought about the Frankenstein story in this too, like the the evolution of it, like the story is still there, but it's changed from being this kind of religious society becoming a secular society to being a story about a human society becoming a post-human society. (laughs) You know
1: what I mean? Well, I don't think I have uh, any Frankenstein related response to that. But I mean, one thing I would say about the AI is, I mean, it, it both worries me and doesn't worry me. I mean, it, I'm not worried about, you know, AI replacing actual human art for two reasons. First of all, because I, d- I don't really believe it's possible. I mean, I think, you know, we did we did that episode on Tim's Vermeer a while back. I mean, I think basically technically recreating something to the T or reproducing something or even reproducing entire genres or mashing together different genres or aesthetics or whatever, doing that in a technically perfect way is still not art. So that doesn't worry me. Okay, but what if I told you that my friend Tim <laughs> painted a Vermeer? <laughs> He painted a Vermeer. He never did. It's And it's in the movie. He goes to see the real thing and he's like, words can't do it justice. It's like, buddy, neither can your cheap reproduction. But so that's one reason it doesn't worry me. Second reason is, look, this is already our culture. It's like, it's you're like projecting some trauma into the future, some anxiety. And it's like, what, do you, what the fuck movie do you think we just watched? Like maybe AI will refine this technique, but the direction of travel is the already there. The dystopia is already it's here. It's already here. Okay. So if you're worried about that, Like it's already happened. So Oh, well, that's such a relief. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think in a way it should be a relief because it, it demystifies the process. It's like, well, this is just related to, you know, the business model of, you know, how movies are made, how culture is now produced, how mass entertainment and so many other things are created. You know, and that's kind of the result of political choices and we can make different ones. So it doesn't worry me in that way. Where it does worry me is, I mean, I think like so much else, I can, I don't have any trouble imagining, and this is not a small concern, I have no trouble imagining a sort of gigification of the arts, entertainment, things like that, where, you know, like a version of, you know, neoliberal austerity or whatever is just applied to the culture industry and to the arts, which, you know, already in many places are pretty threadbare, you know, people already struggling to get relatively small amounts of money together to try to realize an artistic vision of some kind. And, you know, I really have no issue uh, imagining AI enabling uh, or or enabling more, you know, the sort of gigification that's already gone on uh, and is going on elsewhere. But, but it sounds like in what you were recounting, there was a kind of anxiety about like, you know, and, and this definitely goes back, you know, you re- see it running through all kinds of, you know, 20th century science fiction as well. Like the idea that, well, the machines won't just, it, you know, it's not just like they will become dominant in some way or, you know, surpass us in terms of the power and influence they wield. It's, it's that they will surpass us spiritually in some kind of way. You know, it's not just that machines will be able to like put artists out of business. To go with the example we've been uh, discussing, it's that they will make you know superior art that well, you know, defies I, that, what human that beings I'm, can do. I'm not worried and that, I, about that. That doesn't really bother me. I,
0: I'm not worried about that. Although I will just say that I don't think the Marvel Cinematic Universe is superior art either. And Lord knows it's fucking doing really well. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's funny to think, you know, we, we watch this movie and we're like, oh, it's such a degeneration from the original Jurassic Park, which, you know, as you know, we pointed out, it's like, well, that was also just like a profit making, you know, vehicle too. It was also a blockbuster. It's just a better one. And I'm just imagining like when we're at like Michael and us season 35, you know, when Will and I have gone full like late series, The Simpsons, and it's just like not the same thing anymore, but Somehow, Michael and us is just like lumbering on in zombie-like form. That would that would never happen to us.
0: <laughs> That's certainly not happening. To
1: us. Yeah, yeah, we're we're we we are and have always been and always will be driven by higher concerns than you know those Patreon dollars, folks. <laughs> but I'm just imagining like season 35 of Michael and us. You know when they have like the AI-generated Jurassic Park, and we're like, remember, remember when they made real movies? Like remember when like Colin Trevorrow walked among us? <laughs> In the dark, all the dinosaurs are running